0: Welcome to the next podcast, of Milliner Info. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Thank you for joining me today. This episode is with Laura Del Villagio. Laura is the designer and milliner behind the label Millie Star with her studio located in Austin, Texas. She's an active member and serving on the board of the Milliners Guild. She's also a teacher in her local community and these days also in the virtual teaching community. We hope you enjoy this episode with Laura. Thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors, Be Unique Millinery, Hatter's Millinery Supplies, The Millinery Association of Australia, Catherine Cherry Millinery, Hat Academy, The Essential Hat, Hat Atelier, Louise MacDonald Milliner, That Millinery, House for Dawn, Lifted Millinery, Hat Mags, and we'd like to welcome Hat Language as our new podcast sponsor. You can find a link to each of their businesses in our show notes. You can find that in your podcast app, or through our website. If you've been enjoying listening to this podcast series, I'd love to invite you to show your support through becoming a Patreon. We have two tiers, either a podcast sponsor or supporter. You can find out more or sign up to these tiers at www.patreon.com forward slash millineryinfo. We'd really appreciate your support if you're able to show it in this way. I hope you enjoy this episode with Laura.
1: Thank you so much, Laura, for joining me today on the Millinery for Plus podcast. It's wonderful to have you with us. Um, I'd love to start with how did you first get involved with millinery?
2: Um, it's it's been a long journey, but I would say that um, it it began with a love uh, for vintage clothing. So I started collecting and wearing hats when I was like 12 or 13 years old, um, I started hitting the thrift stores and shopping secondhand. And of course, some of the best things I was finding happened to be vintage. And um, I wear a very small size so I could fit into those little 1920s cloches and little 30s kind of garbo fedoras and, and started building up quite the hat collection and wore them almost daily, even as like a student in high school. So it started there with, you know, just collecting and wearing hats. And then in the oh, like 1997, I went off to New York to graduate school specifically for a program, basically in fashion history. It was museum studies for costume and textiles. It was a master's program. And in doing all my research for programs, I discovered that the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, where I was for grad school, also offered millinery. Mm-hmm. And It's one of the very few certificate programs in the U S even now, you know, 20 plus years on. So I, I had the two year graduate program in the fashion history within a museum context and the millinery program was two years. So I got special permission um, to take both at once. So the millinery was an elective. It was just because I loved hats and I was curious about how they were made. And I just, I knew it was an opportunity I didn't want to miss out on. So I, did a lot of research and prep work for the museum stuff and, and made hats. (laughs) Um, and I got hooked. Um, absolutely. And I never really, um, intended to, you know, I wasn't doing it thinking I'm going to be a milliner one day. I remember we had to write like a, um, Oh, well, it's like a short, couple sentence professional statement as we were finishing up the certificate in millinery. I was like, I don't think I'm really going to do this, but it might be fun to do some historical millinery for film or theater sometime. I thought I would kind of combine the two that way maybe, but um, I really at that time was still set on finding a curatorial position, um, which never materialized um, for a lot of reasons. Um, And I kept making hats. I was able to get kind of the core components of my millinery studio in 1999, as I finished school and moved from New York to San Francisco, a steamer and about five hat blocks and like a wig head and the spinner and just the basics, um, from someone who was retiring and it was the early days of eBay. So I think I won one auction. I was like, do you have anything else? And she sent me a list and we did it all by like check and mail and, um, yeah, that would have been 1999. So yeah, so that's yeah. where it started. I just, I missed the hat making once I left FIT and wanted to continue, even if it was just for fun on my own. So, and yeah, did you go on,
1: um, did you, had you worked for anyone during that time when you were studying or it was solely um, learning was within the course?
2: Um, the learning was specifically within the course. Um, I took it's, um, it may have changed now. Um, the program, of course, is still there. At the time, it was uh, four semesters, four courses, and then a, an exam at the end, a compet- competency exam. Three of my four classes were with Janet Linville, who still teaches there. And um, she was an amazing instructor. She's um very strict and very precise and if you were like a millimeter off in your pattern drafting it was a red mark and points off Um, but I I learned really well thanks to um, how strict Janet is and how how wonderful a milliner she is within the theatrical world and as an instructor so I consider you know the the two years at FIT to have been a really good foundation and then after that I just kept making And my mom had taught me how to sew and do handwork like embroidery. So I was always, you know, comfortable with a needle and uh, strong, you know, just always interested in fashion. My um, undergrad was a dual major between history and apparel design. So I had that background. And yeah, just making the hats because I was in San Francisco for a couple of years and then moved to Austin, Texas, which, you know, certainly not in 2001, was not any kind of fashion center whatsoever. Um, Not a lot of hats except for cowboy hats, um, which I don't make, Uh, it's just not my thing. Uh, And so I felt really isolated and I just made hats and sort of carved out a niche market. I used to do a lot of bridal work. um, And then I started to see things really shift in the US market. Um, like 2010, 2011, 2012, um, 2011, I believe was the Royal Wedding with Will and Kate. Mm -hmm. I think every customer for like the next two years wanted to talk about, you know, Duchess Kate and her fascinators. Um, but it made a huge difference in the American market. It was finally on the radar and I didn't get a weird sort of blank look when I said, I'm a milliner. More people kind of knew what that was. And then in uh, 2012, I took the plunge and, and went full time. I gave up my last theater job. I was doing some costume design work and have done millinery full time since then. So it was a good decision. And What type of work are you
1: working um, solely with one on one clients or do you have retails that you stock to? How do you structure that?
2: It has changed a lot over the years. Um, right now, I don't have any stockists that I'm working with because, you know, even though the lockdown hasn't been strict here, I mean, things are really open in Texas. It's quite strange. Um, people just aren't out shopping. So I'm really glad I already had my online presence established um, and I do typically do a mix of custom orders and then things that I make, um, like a, small collections that I'll do or just things that I get inspired to make. And then it resonates with someone and they buy it, which is great. Um, and I really need that creative balance. Um, in the years where I've been slamming busy with custom orders, you know, for the Kentucky Derby and racing season here, spring weddings, I get a little burnt out because when you're working for a client, you know you're working as a designer it's to go with the dress to to flatter their face shape and hair color and and their style and i always find i'm itching to just you know play and make something that makes me happy something i would wear or you know you know so i find i, I need that balance and uh one of the positives of this, the slower season in 2020, you know, with the cancellation or postponement of all the races and some weddings and, um, was that I have had more time, um, and had, you know, enough custom orders and sales through my website to keep me busy, which has been a blessing to have that cool. daily well work. Done. That's a lot yeah. of work
1: to establish that, but then for it to be, um, also returning for you and keeping that flow of income coming through is really important. Well done.
2: Yeah. It, um, That's, that's always been, I've always had to, when I um, registered my, my DBA, which is my doing business as like tax paperwork and all that official stuff. um, Shortly thereafter, I was a single mom with a three-year-old and, you know, I did alterations. I worked part-time at a vintage store owned by a friend and tried to make and sell as many hats as I could um, because it literally meant, you know paying the rent and having grocery money. So, you know, I've always built my business to to turn to profit. Um, So there's always that pressure, like who is going to buy this hat? (laughs) And when customer,
1: yeah, when that customer comes to you, um, you have stock. So when someone's looking for maybe a custom piece, are they picking um, from stock you already have and you're adapting or do some a lot of them walk in with a kind of a... uh, idea if this is exactly what I want and you're making from their concept or how does that process work between you and your customer?
2: It's definitely a collaborative process um I've never kept a ton of inventory on hand because I feel like hats are so individual um that's why I was drawn to them in the first place you know um it's a way to look different than everybody else um and so you know Not everyone's going to be the same size or not going to be the same color, you know, different brim widths. So I don't keep a lot on hand. So when, you know, a custom client walks in and let's say needs a hat to wear to a wedding in Scotland or something, um, then usually we start with a dress. And I take measurements and we look at swatches and it really starts from scratch. And um, I do sketches and then multiple fittings through the process. So it really is that, you know, kind of traditional bespoke process. And and customers really appreciate that. I think they enjoy seeing how it all comes together. Um, and it's much easier to have a custom hat made than it is a custom dress. It's less expensive and prohibitive maybe and, and tends to be a faster process. So I think it's really accessible um, little window into that world of custom fashion.
1: And one of the questions I want to ask you, because you have such an interesting background, is museum studies, is that the correct mm-hmm. title? Yeah. yeah. How yeah. do you think that, uh, that kind of knowledge influences the type of, um, millinery and
2: styles you make? Um, I think, I think there's definitely an influence in my aesthetic, Uh, When I am making, you know, kind of the things that really appeal to me, I'm working with my vintage hat blocks and often, you know, vintage trims or vintage hat bodies. Um, I like a simplicity and elegance in my designs. Um, I'm not one to over trim. I like, you know, either minimalist or just enough. Um, I don't think a hat should overwhelm the wearer. I think there should be a balance head to toe. Um, and just cause you're going to the Kentucky Derby doesn't mean you need a hat that's four feet across. Um, that's, that's not what I do. <laughs> I'll, I'll, stu- I'll still, I'll still them to, you know, another milliner who does that style if that's really what they want. Um, but so there's that aesthetic, you know, that vintage inspiration that I pull from. Um, I also have a ton of like textile expertise because of, you know, the textile chemistry and all the dyeing and, supplementary weave structures. And I I know my textiles really well. So I I know how they're going to behave both under steam, on a block and a dye bath. I think that really helps. Um, The other thing I discovered, you know, it kind of occurred to me one day was that because of my couple of semesters training in textile conservation, All of my tools are much smaller than other milliners use. So like I use small scissors. um, I use really fine gauge needles and pins. I used curved surgical needles, which are fabulous for sewing through all the layers you get with millinery. But um, that's one of my go-to tools. And those are all things that I worked with doing textile conservation work. So there's the tools. And um, I guess one of the other things is that I'm always conscious about how oh, things are going to last over time. In fact, it's kind of in the tagline for my business, which is bespoken and beloved, you know, and that beloved, I hope that, you know, it's around and treasured and cherished for like decades that, you know, someone's granddaughter may find the hat and go, Oh my gosh, this is fabulous. And it'll continue to be worn through time. Um, I think a good hat never really goes out of style. You know, if it's been made well and you know, it doesn't ever really go out of style. Um, and then I also try not to do anything in making a hat that can't be reversed. So like I don't use glues and that's part of the whole sort of textile conservation training too. It's yeah. really interesting how that influences.
1: And you mentioned in your brand there I is Millie Star. How did you come up with that as your
2: brand name? Um when I first registered my paperwork for business, it was Millie Hats and Headwear. And then shortly thereafter, I became aware that, you know, there was like Millie Dresses, and um, I wanted to differentiate from that. Um, Millie is short for millinery, of course. And STAR, um, I just thought it was rather auspicious. And um, I think I I did a lot of astronomy classes in college. I actually was really good at math and science, but... um, just didn't go that direction with any of my studies. Um, I still love looking at the stars. Um, so yeah, I thought it sounded kind of kind of fun and positive. And um, Janet Linville, my instructor had said, don't ever use your own name for your business. <laughs> um, she had some reasons for doing that. Um, and that advice, although I know it's far less common within the fashion world to not design under your name. But anyway, that was one of the reasons too, was following her advice.
1: And so much experience to follow along there too. So she's definitely got a um, a wealth Mm -hmm. of knowledge to be drawing on for for her advice. Um, So your studio space, could you tell us a little bit about that? So
2: it's in Austin, Texas. Yeah, I'm in Austin, Texas, which is kind of in the middle of Texas, um, about three hours South of Dallas. And um, it is most known for probably South by Southwest, the music and film festival um, really put us on the map. And then ACL Fest is a big music festival that usually happens in the fall, That we get a lot of tourists in Austin. It's um, it's a college town that grew um, and it was one that I've uh, left twice and moved back twice. Um, and uh, I don't know, think about moving on now that my daughter's out of high school and in college, we'll see. Um, I do miss a big city, but my studio um, has always been in my home. Um, In other years, I've had uh, a retailer office space for meeting customers, but the mess stays here. And one reason was so that I was home and available for my daughter to, you know, she'd be sitting across from me doing homework, and I'm sitting here sewing. Um, It worked out well. And um, and then I do put in, you know, depending on the season, it's you know, 18-hour days sewing. So um, I really did need to be at home. But I have about a 300 square foot space. I think my favorite things are probably I've got really good lighting which has gotten more important as I've gotten older and my eyes have gotten older <laughs> and um, I have this wonderful six foot by eight foot uh, table it's a production table from an old sewing factory so it's a great height and sturdy and um, I can spread out the mess all over that <laughs> and then the rest of it's pretty organized um, you know shelvings with Blocks and I like to keep all my ribbons and trims and like clear plastic bins so I can see I tend to design by color just to kind of start narrowing it down immediately or the decision making can be really tough and then I've got um, a cinema closet I've got a wonderful <laughs> little closet under the stairs that I keep uh, cinema and straw cloth and bundles things that are more prone to light fading in the closet so they're in the dark most of the time. And then a whole other space that is shipping and photography and um, all that extra stuff, inventory. Yeah, (laughs) but I'm lucky I do have the space at home to spread out and and work. And I did teach um, group classes here in my studio at home with um, up to four or five students um, around my big table. Yeah, I miss that.
1: Is that something you're going to hopefully, will hopefully be able to do again soon? Are you looking forward to will you be teaching again?
2: I, I am. I really am. I miss my students. I have ones that have been, you know, taking classes with me for years. Um, i taught for, it's over a decade. It may be going on 12 years now. Um, and I teach private classes. I've had people come in to Austin from as far away as like Brazil, um, a lot of Canadians. Oh, wow. Mexico all over the U.S. to take classes either you know a few like really focused days or a full week and then group classes and um even though I've done some teaching on Zoom uh, as many of us are um I really miss that energy of, of people gathering in a room and doing something creative and that chatter around a table as as women so um, I miss that um it's just not the same when everyone's on a screen it's <laughs> It's great. The accessibility is amazing. You know, I can, I have had students log in from, you know, Nigeria. I've logged into classes in London or Australia. I mean, that's fabulous, but I do miss the in-person.
1: Okay. And um, I know we're in, I was going to say exceptional circumstances, unusual times, but um, what does a day or a week in your business look like for you? Um,
2: Lately, I've been trying to wake up early, so the house is still quiet, because one of the big changes is I went from basically working at home by myself and everybody else is off at school and work, and it was quiet for at least 12 hours a day to everyone being here, which is different. So I've been trying to wake up really early, so I've got a couple of quiet hours to get my coffee, check my email, check social media, and um, and then dive into whatever orders I need to be working on that day. Um, I do tend to sort of compartmentalize my workflow so that I'll have a day that's all blocking. So the steamer's hot all day and I do all my blocking and then they'll dry overnight and then I'll start doing wiring and work on that. And then everything kind of goes through to the trimming stage. Um, What that means is often I've got a lot of hats um, sitting on the blocks waiting to be finished um, because the blocking is absolutely my favorite thing to do. And um, so, you know, it might not always be the most efficient than, you know, a milliner who blocks and finishes start to finish without any other distractions around them. But um, I also read books the same way. I've got three going right now. (laughs) So, um, yeah. I like to jump around with my projects. Absolutely. Um,
1: And what's some of the, uh, what's one of your favorite projects that you've been working on recently? Um,
2: I've just started a really fun commission that I can't share much about yet, but I'll definitely, um, it'll be fun. It's inspired by a sixties film, a special commission. Um, So uh, let's see. I've always enjoyed working with my Derby customers and um, many of them, you know, go year after year. And so, you know, I've made their hats for every year for the past decade and you just get to know people really well. And I enjoy being part of their stories because when you're doing special occasion millinery um, for the races or weddings, it's, it's something special in their world and they're really planning for it. And the hat's part of those memories. Like I'm really aware that clothing has sentimental value, like we'll associate a dress that we wore to this party where something special happened or, you know, clothing has those memories and sentimentality to it. So I really enjoy being part of their stories. And um, I think one of the coolest things that happened was I have um, a client who lives in Texas, but has a horse farm in Kentucky. And Shortly after working with her the first time, she bought a new filly and named it Millie Star. So there is now a racehorse named Millie Star, and she's won a few races. Um, so everyone can okay. all check in um, and see see how the other Millie's doing. <laughs> that was such an honor. It was just bold over, you know, that she would do that. But um, she loves my work and thought it was a great name. <laughs>
0: So yeah,
2: fantastic yeah, so that was really cool. But yeah, being part of people's stories and that, you know, I've gotten to know some amazing people within the fashion industry here um, through the Milliner's Guild in New York. I've been a member of that for about 11 years, um, just wrapping up my three-year tenure as secretary. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's an amazing community. It has grown so much. It's been really interesting to see particularly the, the changes in the millinery industry in the U.S. since I did my training 22 years ago. Um, it really felt like a dead and dying art at that moment in the late 90s. Um, and there's been such a resurgence in interest. Um, it's really great. That's amazing.
1: What do you think have been some of the key factors in the, the, the resurgence?
2: Um, I think in general, there's been a renewed interest in handwork and craftsmanship and sort of those heritage brands that have been around a long time, um, kind of as a backlash against the fast, fast fashion. Um, and that's been lovely to see. Uh, I think people are looking for creative outlets on their own. So many people are curious and they take a class, um, Again, the, you know, access to classes is so much better than it was 20 years ago. The ability to learn millinery um, is is fairly accessible with just a Google search. And that's, um, I remember when we were all trying to shop from catalogs and by phone. So (laughs) being able to order online is fabulous. Um, I think, you know, historically, uh, when the economy is down, accessory sales are up. Um, lipstick sales go up too, Uh, but accessories in general, because, um, it's much more economical to buy a new hat or belt or shoes than it is the dress. Um, so I think that's played into it a little bit too. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned
1: about the Milliner's Guild there. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the organization and what's involved in being a member and how you got involved?
2: Um it uh was founded in around two thousand seven um and then incorporated as like an official legal nonprofit around two thousand ten which is right around the time I joined. I think I was one of the first official out-of-staters. Most of our m- members, like all the founding members, were in the New York City area, and um, the majority of our membership is still in the Northeastern United States. And I think that part of that is because, you know, New York City is the hub of, you know, the garment district. It's the fashion industry in the U.S., and then the training program at FIT, which is turning out milliners, and you know, there's several hat factories in the city still. Um, right now we have 55 members um, somewhere around there um, so we're a smaller group uh, we meet monthly on zoom now um, which has been fabulous for connecting everyone across the country because we do have milliners you know from across the US now and we do pr- you know online exhibitions now we've done lots of gallery and museum exhibitions um, in 2011 we did a runway presentation during New York Fashion Week. Um, I flew up for that. That was really fun. Uh, so yeah, it's um, it's really beneficial. I enjoy being part of that community a lot. And uh, yeah, it's um, they have a website. If anyone's curious, um, there's you know how to join and what we do, and you can see examples of who our members are and and what they're making. Yeah. That's
1: fantastic. So you've just had a three-year term as secretary. Mm-hmm.
2: That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's fun I mean you know if it's anything uh it's a time commitment uh but it's also really rewarding um and I've, I've enjoyed watching you know the guild grow over the past decade and, and being a part of it too
0: and how have some of your approaches to how you produce millinery changed over the years
2: one of the things that um has been really nice um, in the past year or so is I I kind of before everything hit last spring uh, which would have been March for us uh in January 2020 I set myself a sustainability goal for the year um and and the the overall uh sort of push to do that for me was to bring my business more into better alignment with my values. Um, cause like I mentioned, I've always done thrifting and secondhand and, um, been very conscious about, um, some of the really ill effects of the fashion industry at large. And so my goal for the year was to not try not to buy anything new, work with what I have on hand. Um, if I'm buying something new, it's specifically cause I need to reproduce something that's already on my website that's sold. So, you know, I need that sale. Um, Or, you know, to buy vintage. And the timing was actually great because it meant I didn't drop a bunch of money on supplies to prep for Derby, which ended up being canceled. But it's gone really well. And um, I'm continuing it again for this year where, um, you know, I'm really thinking carefully about what I purchased for my business, um, looking and digging and seeing, oh yeah, I bought that, you know five years ago and never used it. I need to, I need to finally block that, you know, even, and and moving a little bit away from, you know, it's vintage, it's dead stock. I can never get another one. Well, it's not so precious that it shouldn't be used. That's such an important, um, important approach. I'm continuing with that and really enjoying it and definitely have some customers now. Yeah, I, I definitely have some customers now who really appreciate that, you know, the whole thing, you know, is basically, you know, totally sustainably produced, finished um, dead stock felt, finished dead stock ribbons. Um, yeah. And, and i am enjoyed doing, enjoy, you know, there's a little bit more of a challenge in your sourcing, uh, but I've gotten some gorgeous, gorgeous things um, that I've enjoyed working with. So interesting. And how do you communicate
1: that to your customers? Is it on your website or you have, uh, you communicate, like you have a conversation with them?
2: It's um, a little of both. Yeah, I usually, you know, list it on my website. And um, yeah, for a while, I was trying to always do things where I could at least make a few of them, you know, to kind of offset the cost of, you know, a photo shoot with a model and makeup artist and hair and the photographer. And um, if you're if it's a one of a kind, and you know, it's cost you 150 bucks just to photograph it you've got to somehow build that into your overall cost so it always had kind of limited edition even when I pulled in some vintage stuff but I've kind of moved away from that now that um due to COVID you know I'm shooting things on a mannequin head here um, with my lights and you know good camera and everything but uh it's it's opened up some more some more possibilities so and although what I do bl- really miss working with my team <laughs> I've had the same um, really wonderful uh, team to help me do photographs for about 10 years um, and the only, the only thing that's ever changed is the models um, and I had one model I worked with for about seven years so fantastic I've been really lucky that way how often would you sh- shoot um, do a photography shoot about three times a year okay. not a lot a-
1: it's a lot of work it is so much work. Three times a year is, is a quite quite a big number. Um, and do you do it? Uh, treat it as a like a, a seasonal collection, or you'll just um, photograph pieces that you have on hand. How, does, how do you decide what's going to be what's going to be? Usually
2: shot? a seasonal collection. Um, yeah, the newest stuff. Yeah.
1: I was going to ask you about your block collection. What Does that look like? How many don't know? No, maybe you don't tell me a number, that's all right. <laughs> what what kind of pieces um, do you use most frequently? What are some of your favorites and where, where, did, where did how do they
2: come to you? I imagine I've got somewhere with probably around 200 blocks. Um, I've got you know at least a dozen you know balsa utility blocks like studio blocks um and all the sizes those are kind of like the workhorse in my studio plus when teaching you need all the sizes um and then you know there's always the basic you know carwell brims and dome crowns you need but my favorites are my puzzle blocks and i've really built up quite the collection of vintage puzzle blocks um i just think they make the most wonderful Intriguing shapes and are easy to block. You don't have a big brim. You've got a wire and deal with. Usually they're pretty small and um, often that raw edge tucks under, and so they're fairly fast to make too. So um, I've got quite a few now, and uh, I think my other favorite category is probably saucer hats. Um, I think they're just fun and photographed so well, and they've been a continual, you know, good seller for me. For probably about seven or eight years, so I get a lot of use out of my saucer blocks too. And I find a lot of them online. You know, eBay, Etsy. Um, I've been doing millinery long enough that my name is known, and so occasionally I'll also get just an email um, saying, "So and so is retiring. They've got blocks. Do you want them?" or I'm calling my collection. Do you, do you want first steps? I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> always. Um, yeah. There, you can never have too many blocks. There's always, yeah, I think there's really a thing called hat block envy uh, that many, many milliners suffer from, right? <laughs> Absolutely. we do. <laughs> um, yeah. So I love the vintage ones It also, you know, blocks are kind of like our pattern library as milliners. And so, with vintage blocks, I know that that style or shape is unique to me and what I'm making. Um, And then I've also started doing more custom, send off sketches. Um, And for that, I usually work with um, either Guy Morris or um, Daryl at Hat Blocks Australia. I've got a lot of blocks from from both of them that do good work. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Yeah, slowly but surely. I really started out with those five and um, you know, was most definitely on, on quite the budget with my business. And, you know, you, I started very small and only custom. And so, you know, I'd get my deposit and would cover the supplies <laughs> that I needed. And then there'd be a little bit of profit. And some of that would go, you know, into the bank and some of it would go back into the business. Um, and that's just what I've done over the years. And I, I really do feel incredibly blessed to have um, materials on hand. And, and blocks around me at this point after um, two decades two decades of doing this and, and starting so small and on such a shoestring, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's nice to have a drawer of, of a felt hat bodies. <laughs> it really is. Um, and I'm, I'm quite aware of that, that um, I'm really lucky. And I know that I'm lucky to be able to spend every day, you know, working in a studio with my hands. Yeah
1: was a perfect note I thank you so much (laughs) for being a part of our podcast Laura it was so lovely to talk
2: about Millie Star with you yeah my pleasure Lauren thank you so much for inviting me
0: thank you for listening to this episode of Millinery Info with Laura I'd like to thank our Patreon podcast sponsors Hat Language, Be Unique Millinery Hatter's Millinery Supplies, The Millinery Association of Australia, Catherine Cherry Millinery, Hat Academy, The Essential Hat, Hat Atelier, Louise MacDonald Milliner, That Millinery, House of Adorn, Lifted Millinery, and Hat Mags. You can find a link to each of these businesses in our show notes. You can do that through your podcast app or through our website. We're really appreciative of their support of this podcast series, and we invite you to check out these amazing businesses. You or your business could show your support of Milliner Info by becoming a Patreon. There are two tiers. You could choose to be a podcast sponsor, which means your business or event is mentioned in our podcast, a link included on the Milliner Info website, and in the monthly newsletter. This starts from just $15 per month. The other option is the supporter tier. This is from just $5. It's for those who would like to more quietly show their support so we can keep producing the content you see and hear on Millinery Info. If you have any questions about becoming a Patreon, I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, visit www.patreon.com forward slash millineryinfo to sign up. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie, and I look forward to talking hats with you again soon.